Book One, Chapter Three, Part One of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book One. Mrs. Baines. Chapter Three. A Battle. One. The day sanctioned by custom in the five towns for the making of pastry is Saturday, but Mrs. Baines made her pastry on Friday, because Saturday afternoon was, of course, a busy time in the shop. It is true that Mrs. Baines made her pastry in the morning, and that Saturday morning in the shop was scarcely different from any other morning. Nevertheless, Mrs. Baines made her pastry on Friday morning instead of Saturday morning, because Saturday afternoon was a busy time in the shop. She was thus free to do her marketing, without breathtaking flurry, on Saturday morning. On the morning after Sophia's first essay in dentistry, therefore, Mrs. Baines was making her pastry in the underground kitchen. This kitchen, Maggie's cavern home, had the mystery of a church, and on dark days it had the mystery of a crypt. The stone steps leading down to it from the level of earth were quite unlighted. You felt for them with the feet of faith, and when you arrived in the kitchen, the kitchen, by contrast, seemed luminous and gay. The architect may have considered and intended this effect of the staircase. The kitchen saw day through a wide, shallow window, whose top touched the ceiling, and whose bottom had been out of the girl's reach until long after they had begun to go to school. Its panes were small, and about half of them were of the not kind, through which no object could be distinguished. The other half were of a later date, and stood for the march of civilization. The view from the window consisted of the vast plate-glass windows of the newly-built sun vaults, and of passing legs and skirts. A strong wire grating prevented any excess of illumination, and also protected the glass from the caprices of wayfarers in King Street. Boys had a habit of stopping to kick with their full strength at the grating. Forget-me-nots on a brown field ornamented the walls of the kitchen. Its ceiling was irregular and grimy, and a beam ran across it. In this beam were two hooks— from these hooks had once depended the ropes of a swing, much used by Constance and Sophia in the old days before they were grown up. A large range stood out from the wall between the stairs and the window. The rest of the furniture comprised a table, against the wall opposite the range, a cupboard, and two Windsor chairs. Opposite the foot of the steps was a doorway, without a door, leading to two larders, dimmer even than the kitchen, Vague retreats made visible by whitewash, where bowls of milk, dishes of cold bones, and remainders of fruit pies reposed on stillages. In the corner nearest the kitchen was a great steen in which the bread was kept. Another doorway on the other side of the kitchen led to the first coal cellar, where was also the slopstone and tap, and thence a tunnel took you to the second coal cellar, where the coke and ashes were stored. The tunnel proceeded to a distant infinitesimal yard, and from the yard, by ways behind Mr. Critchlow's shop, you could finally emerge astonished upon Broom Street. 
the sense of the vast obscure of those regions, which began at the top of the kitchen steps, and ended in black corners of larders, or abruptly in the common dailiness of Broom Street, a sense which Constance and Sophia had acquired in infancy, remained with them almost unimpaired as they grew old. Mrs. Baines wore black alpaca, shielded by a white apron, whose string drew attention to the amplitude of her waist. Her sleeves were turned up, and her hands, as far as the knuckles, covered with damp flour. Her ageless, smooth pasteboard occupied a corner of the table, and near it were her paste-roller, butter, some pie-dishes, shredded apples, sugar, and other things. Those rosy hands were at work among a sticky substance in a large white bowl. "'Mother, are you there?' she heard a voice from above. "'Yes, my chuck.' Footsteps, apparently reluctant and hesitating, clinked on the stairs, and Sophia entered the kitchen. "'Put this curl straight,' said Mrs. Baines, lowering her head slightly and holding up her floured hands, which might not touch anything but flour. "'Thank you. It bothered me. "'And now stand out of my light. I'm in a hurry. I must get into the shop so that I can send Mr. Povey off to the dentist's. What is Constance doing?' helping Maggie to make Mr. Povey's bed. Oh! Though fat, Mrs. Baines was a comely woman, with fine brown hair and confidently calm eyes that indicated her belief in her own capacity to accomplish whatever she could be called on to accomplish. She looked neither more nor less than her age, which was forty-five. She was not a native of the district, having been culled by her husband from the moorland town of Axe, twelve miles off. Like nearly all women who settle in a strange land upon marriage, at the bottom of her heart she had considered herself just a trifle superior to the strange land and its ways. This feeling, confirmed by long experience, had never left her. It was this feeling which induced her to continue making her own pastry, with two thoroughly trained great girls in the house. Constance could make good pastry, but it was not her mother's pastry. In pastry-making, everything can be taught except the hand, light and firm, which wheels the roller. One is born with this hand, or without it, and if one is born without it, the highest flights of pastry are impossible. Constance was born without it. There were days when Sophia seemed to possess it, but there were other days when Sophia's pastry was uneatable by anyone except Maggie. Thus Mrs. Baines, though intensely proud and fond of her daughters, had justifiably preserved a certain condescension towards them. She honestly doubted whether either of them would develop into the equal of their mother. "'Now, you little vixen!' she exclaimed. Sophia was stealing and eating slices of half-cooked apple. "'This comes of having no breakfast. And why didn't you come down to supper last night?' "'I don't know. I, I forgot.' Mrs. Baines scrutinised the child's eyes, which met hers with a sort of diffident boldness. She knew everything that a mother can know of a daughter, and she was sure that Sophia had no cause to be indisposed. Therefore she, therefore she scrutinised those eyes with a faint apprehension. "'If you can't find anything better to do,' said she, "'butter me the inside of this dish. Are your hands clean? No. Better not touch it.' Mrs. Baines was now at the stage of depositing little pats of butter in rows on a large plane of paste, the best fresh butter, 
Cooking butter, to say naught of lard, was unknown in that kitchen on Friday mornings. She doubled the expanse of paste on itself and rolled the butter in. Supreme operation. "'Constance has told you about leaving school,' said Mrs. Baines, in the vein of small talk, as she trimmed the paste to the shape of a pie-dish. "'Yes,' Sophia replied shortly. Then she moved away from the table to the range. There was a toasting-fork on the rack, and she began to play with it. "'Well, are you glad? Your Aunt Harriet thinks you are quite old enough to leave, and as we decided in any case that Constance was to leave, it's really much simpler that you should both leave together.' "'Mother,' said Sophia, rattling the toasting-fork, "'what am I going to do after I've left school?' "'I hope,' Mrs. Baines answered, with that sententiousness which even the cleverest of parents are not always clever enough to deny themselves, I hope that both of you will do what you can to help your mother and father, she added. Yes, said Sophia, irritated, but what am I going to do? That must be considered. As Constance is to learn the millinery, I have been thinking that you might begin to make yourself useful in the underwear, gloves, silks, and so on, then between you, you would one day be able to manage quite nicely all that side of the shop, and I should be—I don't want to go into the shop, mother. This interruption was made in a voice apparently cold and inimical, but Sophia trembled with nervous excitement as she uttered the words. Mrs. Baines gave a brief glance at her, unobserved by the child, whose face was towards the fire. She deemed herself a finished expert in the reading of Sophia's moods. Nevertheless, as she looked at that straight back and proud head, she had no suspicion that the whole essence and being of Sophia was silently but intensely imploring sympathy. "'I wish you'd be quiet with that fork,' said Mrs. Baines, with the curious prim politeness which often characterised her relations with her daughters. The toasting fork fell on the brick floor, and having rebounded from the ash-tin, Sophia hurriedly replaced it on the rack. "'Then what shall you do?' Mrs. Baines proceeded, conquering the annoyance caused by the toasting-fork. "'I think it's me that should ask you, instead of you asking me. What shall you do? Your father and I were both hoping you would take kindly to the shop and try to repay us for all the—' Mrs. Baines was unfortunate in her phrasing that morning. She happened to be, in truth, rather an exceptional parent— but that morning she seemed unable to avoid the absurd pretensions which parents of those days assumed quite sincerely, and which every good child with meekness accepted. Sophia was not a good child, and she obstinately denied in her heart the cardinal principle of family life, namely, that the parent has conferred on the offspring a supreme favour by bringing it into the world. She interrupted her mother again, rudely. "'I don't want to leave school at all,' she said, passionately. "'But you will have to leave school sooner or later,' argued Mrs. Baines, with an air of quiet reasoning, of putting herself on a level with Sophia. "'You can't stay at school for ever, my pet, can you? Out of my way.' She hurried across the kitchen with a pie, which she whipped into the oven, shutting the iron door with a careful gesture. "'Yes,' said Sophia. I should like to be a teacher. That's what I want to be. The tap in the coal-cellar, out of repair, could be heard distinctly and systematically dropping water into a jar on the slopstone. A school-teacher? 
inquired Mrs. Baines. "'Of course. What other kind is there?' said Sophia sharply. "'With Miss Chetwynd.' "'I don't think your father would like that,' Mrs. Baines replied. "'I'm sure he wouldn't like it.' "'Why not?' "'It wouldn't be quite suitable.' "'Why not, mother?' the girl demanded, with a sort of ferocity. She had now quitted the range. A man's feet twinkled past the window. Mrs. Baines was startled and surprised. Sophia's attitude was really very trying. Her manners deserved correction. But it was not these phenomena which seriously affected Mrs. Baines. She was used to them, and had come to regard them as somehow the inevitable accompaniment of Sophia's beauty, as the penalty of that surpassing charm which occasionally emanated from the girl like a radiance. What startled and surprised Mrs. Baines was the perfect and unthinkable madness of Sophia's infantile scheme. It was a revelation to Mrs. Baines. Why in the name of heaven had the girl taken such a notion into her head? Orphans, widows, and spinsters of a certain age suddenly thrown on the world? These were the women who naturally became teachers, because they had to become something. But that the daughter of comfortable parents, surrounded by love and the pleasures of an excellent home, should wish to teach in a school, was beyond the horizons of Mrs. Baines's common sense. The comfortable parents of today, who have a difficulty in sympathising with Mrs. Baines, should picture what their feelings would be if their sapphires showed a rude desire to adopt the vocation of chauffeur. "'It would take you too much away from home,' said Mrs. Baines, achieving a second pie. She spoke softly. The experience of being Sophia's mother for nearly sixteen years had not been lost on Mrs. Baines, and though she was now discovering undreamt-of dangers in Sophia's erratic temperament, she kept her presence of mind sufficiently well to behave with diplomatic smoothness. It was undoubtedly humiliating to a mother— to be forced to use diplomacy in dealing with a girl in short sleeves. In her day, mothers had been autocrats. But Sophia was Sophia. "'What if it did?' Sophia curtly demanded. "'Miss Chetwynd would have me, and then after a time I could go to her sister.' "'Her sister? What sister?' "'Her sister that has a big school in London somewhere.' Mrs. Baines covered her unprecedented emotions by gazing into the oven at the first pie— the pie was doing well under all the circumstances. In those few seconds she reflected rapidly, and decided that to a desperate disease a desperate remedy must be applied. London! She herself had never been further than Manchester. London, after a time? No diplomacy would be misplaced in this crisis of Sophia's development. Sophia, she said, in a changed and solemn voice, fronting her daughter, and holding away from her apron those flowered, ringed hands. "'I don't know what's come over you. Truly I don't. Your father and I are prepared to put up with a certain amount, but the line must be drawn. The fact is we've spoilt you, and instead of getting better as you grow up, you're getting worse. Now, let me hear no more of this, please. I wish you would imitate your sister a little more.' "'Of course, if you won't do your share in the shop, no one can make you. "'If you choose to be an idler about the house, we shall have to endure it. "'We can only advise you for your own good. "'But as for this—' "'She stopped, and let silence speak, and then finished. "'Let me hear no more of it.' "'It was a powerful and impressive speech. 
enunciated clearly in such a tone as Mrs. Baines had not employed since dismissing a young lady assistant five years ago for light conduct. "'But, mother!' A commotion of pails resounded at the top of the stone steps. It was Maggie in descent from the bedrooms. Now the Baines family passed its life in doing its best to keep its affairs to itself, the assumption being that Maggie and all the shop staff, Mr. Povey possibly excepted, were obsessed by a ravening appetite for that which did not concern them. Therefore the voices of the Baineses always died away, or fell to a hushed, mysterious whisper, whenever the foot of the eavesdropper was heard. Mrs. Baines put a flowered finger to her double chin. "'That will do,' said she, with finality. Maggie appeared, and Sophia, with the brusque precipitation of herself, vanished upstairs. Two. "'Now, really, Mr. Povey, this is not like you,' said Mrs. Baines, who, on her way into the shop, had discovered the indispensable in the cutting-out room. It is true that the cutting-out room was almost Mr. Povey's sanctum, whither he retired from time to time to cut out suits of clothes and odd garments for the tailoring department. It is true that the tailoring department flourished with orders, employing several tailors who crossed legs in their own homes, and that appointments were continually being made with customers for trying on in that room. But these considerations did not affect Mrs. Baines's attitude of disapproval. "'I'm just cutting out that suit for the minister,' said Mr. Povey. The Reverend Mr. Murley, superintendent of the Wesleyan Methodist circuit, called on Mr. Baines every week. On a recent visit, Mr. Baines had remarked that the parson's coat was ageing into green, and had commanded that a new suit should be built and presented to Mr. Murley. Mr. Murley, who had a genuine medieval passion for souls, and who spent his money and health freely in gratifying the passion, had accepted the offer strictly on behalf of Christ and had carefully explained to Mr. Povey Christ's use for multifarious pockets. "'I see you are,' said Mrs. Baines tartly. "'But that's no reason why you should be without a coat, and in this cold room, too. You with toothache.' The fact was that Mr. Povey always doffed his coat when cutting out. Instead of a coat, he wore a tape-measure. "'My tooth doesn't hurt me,' said he, sheepishly dropping the great scissors and picking up a cake of chalk. "'Fiddlesticks!' said Mrs. Baines. The exclamation shocked Mr. Povey. It was not unknown on the lips of Mrs. Baines, but she usually reserved it for members of her own sex. Mr. Povey could not recall that she had ever applied it to any statement of his. "'What's the matter with the woman?' he thought. The redness of her face did not help him to answer the question, for her face was always red after the operations of Friday in the kitchen. "'You men are all alike,' Mrs. Baines continued. "'The very thought of the dentist's cures you. Why don't you go in at once to Mr. Critchlow and have it out, like a man?' Mr. Critchlow extracted teeth, and his shop sign said, "'Bonesetter and Chemist.' But Mr. Povey had his views. "'I make no account of Mr. Critchlow as a dentist,' said he. "'Then, for goodness' sake, go to Oolsnum's.' "'When? I can't very well go now, and to-morrow is Saturday.' "'Why can't you go now?' "'Well, of course, I could go now,' he admitted. "'Let me advise you to go, then, and don't come back with that tooth in your head. I shall be having you laid up next. Show some pluck, do.' 
"'Oh, Pluck!' he protested, hurt. At that moment Constance came down the passage, singing. "'Constance, my pet!' Mrs. Baines called. "'Yes, mother!' She put her head into the room. "'Oh!' Mr. Povey was assuming his coat. "'Mr. Povey is going to the dentist's.' Uh, "'Yes, I'm going at once,' Mr. Povey confirmed. "'Oh, I'm so glad!' Constance exclaimed. Her face expressed a pure sympathy, uncomplicated by critical sentiments. Mr. Povey rapidly bathed in that sympathy, and then decided that he must show himself a man of oak and iron. "'It's always best to get these things done with,' said he, with stern detachment. "'I'll just slip my overcoat on.' "'Here it is,' said Constance quickly. Mr. Povey's overcoat and hat were hung on a hook immediately outside the room in the passage. She gave him the overcoat, anxious to be of service. "'I didn't call you in here to be Mr. Povey's valet,' said Mrs. Baines to herself, with mild grimness, and aloud, "'I can't stay in the shop long, Constance, but you can be there, can't you, till Mr. Povey comes back, and if anything happens, run up and tell me.' "'Yes, mother,' Constance eagerly consented. She hesitated, and then turned to obey at once. "'I want to speak to you first, my pet.' Mrs. Baines stopped her, and her tone was peculiar, charged with import, confidential, and therefore very flattering to Constance. "'I think I'll go out by the side door,' said Mr. Povey. "'It'll be nearer.' This was truth. He would save about ten yards in two miles by going out through the side door instead of through the shop. Who could have guessed that he was ashamed to be seen going to the dentist's, afraid lest, if he went through the shop, Mrs. Baines might follow him? and utter some remark prejudicial to his dignity before the assistants. Mrs. Baines could have guessed, and did. "'You won't want that tape-measure,' said Mrs. Baines, dryly, as Mr. Povey dragged open the side door. The ends of the forgotten tape-measure were dangling beneath coat and overcoat. "'Oh!' Mr. Povey scowled at his forgetfulness. "'I'll put it in its place,' said Constance, offering to receive the tape-measure. "'Thank you,' said Mr. Povey, gravely. "'I don't suppose they'll be long over my bit of a job,' he added, with a difficult, miserable smile. Then he went off down King Street, with an exterior of gay briskness and dignified joy in the fine May morning. But there was no May morning in his cowardly human heart. "'Hi, Povey!' cried a voice from the square. But Mr. Povey disregarded all appeals. He had put his hand to the plough, and he would not look back. "'Hi! Povey!' Useless. Mrs. Baines and Constance were both at the door. A middle-aged man was crossing the road from Bolton Terrace, the lofty erection of new shops which the envious rest of the square had decided to call showy. He waved a hand to Mrs. Baines, who kept the door open. "'It's Dr. Harrop she said to Constance, "'I shouldn't be surprised if that baby's come at last, and he wanted to tell Mr. Povey.' Constance blushed, full of pride. Mrs. Povey, wife of our Mr. Povey's, renowned cousin, the high-class confectioner and baker in Bolton Terrace, was a frequent subject of discussion in the Baines family. But this was absolutely the first time that Mrs. Baines had acknowledged, in presence of Constance, the marked and growing change which had characterised Mrs. Povey's condition during the recent months. Such frankness on the part of her mother, coming after the decision about leaving school, 
proved indeed that Constance had ceased to be a mere girl. "'Good morning, doctor.' The doctor, who carried a little bag and wore riding-breeches—he was the last doctor in Bursley to abandon the saddle for the dog-cart—saluted and straightened his high black stock. "'Morning. Morning, Missy. Well, it's a boy.' "'What? Yonder?' asked Mrs. Baines, indicating the confectioners. Dr. Harrop nodded. "'I wanted to inform him,' said he, jerking his shoulder in the direction of the swaggering coward. "'What did I tell you, Constance?' said Mrs. Baines, turning to her daughter. Constance's confusion was equal to her pleasure. The alert doctor had halted at the foot of the two steps, and with one hand in the pocket of his full-fall breeches, he gazed up, smiling out of little eyes at the ample matron and the slender virgin. "'Yes,' he said, "'been up most of the night. Difficult, difficult. "'It's all right, I hope.' "'Oh, yes, fine child, fine child. "'But he put his mother to some trouble for all that. "'Nothing fresh?' "'This time he lifted his eyes to indicate Mr. Baines's bedroom. "'No,' said Mrs. Baines, with a different expression. "'Keeps cheerful. Yes. Good. "'A very good morning to ye.' "'He strode off towards his house, which was lower down the street.' "'I hope she'll turn over a new leaf now,' observed Mrs. Baines to Constance, as she closed the door. Constance knew that her mother was referring to the confectioner's wife. She gathered that the hope was slight in the extreme. "'What did you want to speak to me about, mother?' she asked, as a way out of her delicious confusion. "'Shut that door,' Mrs. Baines replied, pointing to the door which led to the passage, and while Constance obeyed, Mrs. Baines herself shut the staircase door. She then said, in a low, guarded voice, "'What's all this about Sophia wanting to be a schoolteacher?' "'Wanting to be a schoolteacher?' Constance repeated, in tones of amazement. "'Yes. Hasn't she said anything to you?' "'Not a word.' "'Well, I never. She wants to keep on with Miss Chetwind and be a teacher.' Mrs. Baines had half a mind to add that Sophia had mentioned London, but she restrained herself. There are some things which one cannot bring oneself to say. She added, "'Instead of going into the shop?' "'I never heard of such a thing,' Constance murmured brokenly, in the excess of her astonishment. She was rolling up Mr. Povey's tape-measure. "'Neither did I,' said Mrs. Baines. "'And shall you let her, mother?' "'Neither your father nor I would ever dream of it,' Mrs. Baines replied, with calm and yet terrible decision. "'I only mentioned it to you because I thought Sophia would have told you something.' "'No, mother.' As Constance put Mr. Povey's tape-measure neatly away in its drawer under the cutting-out counter, she thought how serious life was, what with babies and Sophia's. She was very proud of her mother's confidence in her. This simple pride filled her ardent breast with a most agreeable commotion, and she wanted to help everybody, to show in some way how much she sympathised with and loved everybody. Even the madness of Sophia did not weaken her longing to comfort Sophia. 3. That afternoon there was a search for Sophia, whom no one had seen since dinner. She was discovered by her mother, sitting alone and unoccupied in the drawing-room. The circumstance was in itself sufficiently peculiar, for on weekdays the drawing-room was never used. 
even by the girls during their holidays, except for the purpose of playing the piano. However, Mrs. Baines offered no comment on Sophia's geographical situation, nor on her idleness. "'My dear,' she said, standing at the door, with a self-conscious effort to behave as though nothing had happened, "'will you come and sit with your father a bit?' "'Yes, mother,' answered Sophia, with a sort of cold alacrity. "'Sophia is coming, father,' said Mrs. Baines, at the open door of the bedroom, which was at right angles with, and close to, the drawing-room door. Then she surged, swishing along the corridor, and went into the showroom, whither she had been called. Sophia passed to the bedroom, the eternal prison of John Baines. Although, on account of his nervous restlessness, Mr. Baines was never left alone, it was not a part of the usual duty of the girls to sit with him. The person who undertook the main portion of the vigils was a certain Aunt Maria, whom the girls knew not to be a real aunt, not a powerful, effective aunt like Aunt Harriet of Axe, but a poor second cousin of John Baines, one of those necessitous, pitiful relatives who so often make life difficult for a great family in a small town. The existence of Aunt Maria, after being rather a trial to the Baineses, had for twelve years past developed into something absolutely providential for them. It is to be remembered that in those days Providence was still busying himself with everybody's affairs, and foreseeing the future in the most extraordinary manner. Thus, having foreseen that John Baines would have a stroke, and need a faithful, tireless nurse, he had begun fifty years in advance by creating Aunt Maria, and had kept her carefully in misfortune's way, so that at the proper moment she would be ready to cope with the stroke. Such, at least, is the only theory which will explain the use by the Baineses, and indeed by all thinking Bursley, of the word providential in connection with Aunt Maria. She was a shrivelled little woman, capable of sitting twelve hours a day in a bedroom and thriving on the regime. At nights she went home to her little cottage in Broom Street. She had her Thursday afternoons, and generally her Sundays, and during the school vacations she was supposed to come only when she felt inclined, or when the cleaning of her cottage permitted her to come. Hence, in holiday seasons, Mr. Baines weighed more heavily on his household than at other times, and his nurses relieved each other according to the contingencies of the moment, rather than by a set programme of hours. The tragedy in Ten Thousand Acts, of which that bedroom was the scene, almost entirely escaped Sophia's perception, as it did Constance's. Sophia went into the bedroom as though it were a mere bedroom, with its majestic mahogany furniture, its crimson rep curtains edged with gold, and its white, heavily tasselled counterpane. She was aged four when John Baines had suddenly been seized with giddiness on the steps of his shop, and had fallen, and, without losing consciousness, had been transformed from John Baines into a curious and pathetic survival of John Baines. She had no notion of the thrill which ran through the town on that night, when it was known that John Baines had had a stroke, and that his left arm and left leg and his right eyelid were paralysed, and that the active member of the local board, the orator, the religious worker, the very life of the town's life, was permanently done for. She had never heard of the crisis through which her mother, assisted by Aunt Harriet, had passed, and out of which she had triumphantly emerged. She was not yet old enough even to suspect it. She possessed only the vaguest memory of her father before he had finished with the world. She knew him simply as an organism on a bed, whose left side was wasted, 
whose eyes were often inflamed, whose mouth was crooked, who had no creases from the nose to the corners of the mouth like other people, who experienced difficulty in eating, because the food would somehow get between his gums and his cheek, who slept a great deal, but was excessively fidgety while awake, who seemed to hear what was said to him a long time after it was uttered, as if the sense had to travel miles by labyrinthine passages to his brain, and who talked very, very slowly, in a weak, trembling voice. And she had an image of that remote brain as something with a red spot on it, for once Constance had said, "'Mother, why did father have a stroke?' And Mrs. Baines had replied, "'It was a hemorrhage of the brain, my dear, here,' putting a thimbled finger on a particular part of Sophia's head." Not merely had Constance and Sophia never really felt their father's tragedy, Mrs. Baines herself had largely lost the sense of it, such is the effect of use. Even the ruined organism only remembered fitfully and partially that it had once been John Baines, and if Mrs. Baines had not, by the habit of years, gradually built up a gigantic fiction that the organism remained ever the supreme consultative head of the family if Mr. Critchlow had not obstinately continued to treat it as a crony, the mass of living and dead nerves on the rich Victorian bedstead would have been of no more account than some Aunt Maria in similar case. These two persons, his wife and his friend, just managed to keep him morally alive by indefatigably feeding his importance and his dignity. The feat was a miracle of stubborn, self-deceiving, splendidly blind devotion and incorrigible pride. When Sophia entered the room, the paralytic followed her with his nervous gaze until she had sat down on the end of the sofa at the foot of the bed. He seemed to study her for a long time, and then he murmured in his slow, enfeebled, irregular voice, "'Is that Sophia?' "'Yes, father,' she answered cheerfully. And after another pause the old man said, "'Aye, it's Sophia.' And later— "'Your mother said she'd send ye.' Sophia saw that this was one of his bad, dull days. He had, occasionally, days of comparative nimbleness, when his wits seized almost easily the meanings of external phenomena. Presently his sallow face and long white beard began to slip down the steep slant of the pillows, and a troubled look came into his left eye. Sophia rose, and, putting her hands under his armpits, lifted him higher in the bed. He was not heavy, but only a strong girl of her years could have done it. "'Aye,' he muttered, "'that's it, that's it.' And with his controllable right hand he took her hand as she stood by the bed. She was so young and fresh, such an incarnation of the spirit of health, and he was so far gone in decay and corruption, that there seemed in this contact of body with body something unnatural and repulsive. But Sophia did not so feel it. Sophia, he addressed her, and made preparatory noises in his throat while she waited. He continued, after an interval, now clutching her arm. Your mother's been telling me you don't want to go in the shop. She turned her eyes on him, and his anxious, dim gaze met hers. She nodded. Nay, Sophia he mumbled, with the extreme of slowness. "'I'm surprised at ye. Trade's bad, bad. You know trade's bad.' 
He was still clutching her arm. She nodded. She was, in fact, aware of the badness of trade, caused by a vague war in the United States. The words North and South had a habit of recurring in the conversation of adult persons. That was all she knew, though people were starving in the five towns, as they were starving in Manchester. "'There's your mother,' his thought struggled on like an aged horse over a hilly road. "'There's your mother,' he repeated, as if wishful to direct Sophia's attention to the spectacle of her mother. "'Working hard. Car Car Constance, and you must help her. Trade's bad.' "'What can I do, lying here?' The heat from his dry fingers was warming her arm. She wanted to move, but she could not have withdrawn her arm without appearing impatient. For a similar reason she would not avert her glance. A deepening flush increased the lustre of her immature loveliness as she bent over him. But though it was so close, he did not feel that radiance— he had long outlived a susceptibility to the strange influences of youth and beauty. "'Teaching,' he muttered. "'Nay, nay, I cannot allow that.' Then his white beard rose at the tip, as he looked up at the ceiling above his head reflectively. "'You understand me?' he questioned, finally. She nodded again. He loosed her arm, and she turned away. She could not have spoken. Glittering tears enriched her eyes. She was saddened into a profound and sudden grief by the ridiculousness of the scene. She had youth, physical perfection. She brimmed with energy, with the sense of vital power. All existence lay before her. When she put her lips together, she felt capable of outvying no matter whom in fortitude of resolution. She had always hated the shop. She did not understand how her mother and Constance could bring themselves to be deferential and flattering to every customer that entered. No, she did not understand it. But her mother, though a proud woman, and Constance, seemed to practice such behaviour so naturally, so unquestioningly, that she had never imparted to either of them her feelings. She guessed that she would not be comprehended. But long ago she had decided that she would never go into the shop— she knew that she would be expected to do something, and she had fixed on teaching as the one possibility. These decisions had formed part of her inner life for years past. She had not mentioned them, being secretive, and scarcely anxious for unpleasantness. But she had been slowly preparing herself to mention them. The extraordinary announcement that she was to leave school at the same time as Constance had taken her unawares, before the preparations ripening in her mind were complete— before, as it were, she had girded up her loins for the fray. She had been caught unready, and the opposing forces had obtained the advantage of her. But did they suppose she was beaten? No argument from her mother, no hearing even, just a curt and haughty, let me hear no more of this. And so the great desire of her life, nourished year after year in her inmost bosom, was to be flouted and sacrificed with a word. Her mother did not appear ridiculous in the affair, for her mother was a genuine power, commanding by turns genuine love and genuine hate, and always, till then, obedience and the respect of reason. It was her father who appeared tragically ridiculous, and in turn the whole movement against her grew grotesque in its absurdity. Here was this antique wreck, helpless, useless, powerless, merely pathetic, 
actually thinking that he had only to mumble in order to make her understand. He knew nothing, he perceived nothing, he was a ferocious egoist, like most bedridden invalids, out of touch with life, and he thought himself justified in making destinies, and capable of making them. Sophia could not perhaps define the feelings which overwhelmed her, but she was conscious of their tendency. They aged her by years. They aged her so that in a kind of momentary ecstasy of insight she felt older than her father himself. "'You'll be a good girl,' he said. "'I'm sure of that.' It was too painful. The grotesqueness of her father's complacency humiliated her past bearing. She was humiliated not for herself but for him. Singular creature. She ran out of the room. Fortunately, Constance was passing in the corridor, otherwise Sophia had been found guilty of a great breach of duty. "'Go to father!' she whispered hysterically to Constance, and fled upwards to the second floor. End of chapter 3 Part 1